Father God, as we come before your word this morning, will you quiet our hearts? Will you root out darkness so that we might see with greater clarity the light of your salvation? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if Thomas Edison ever realized how many arguments he was creating. How many conflicts, how many divisions, how many tears. How many times houses would denigrate into yelling or, or threats or these sorts of things with his creation of the light bulb. Parents, often, I would, I would be surprised to uh, find out if, uh, I would guess, maybe I'll ask you guys right now. Has Isabel ever cried when you turned off the lights? She might have. Okay. Maybe not. Their first parent. So who knows? She hated the dark. That little hand of resistance to the darkness. So you know that continues. Right, Bridget? Right, Monica? Right, Audrey? Right, Caitlin? Even my wife at times. That defiance of the flick of the switch. It creates conflict. Here is the ninth plague. Here is the plague of who controls the light switch. That's really at the heart of the beginning of this plague. The world's creation story. That first page of the Bible. The first thing that God creates that he identifies as good is for light to be found in the formless, darkened void. Of God's goodness, he, he represents in creation. And the ninth plague, in one sense, is a simple story of God telling a hardened Pharaoh and a hardened people, you continue to hate me and my people, I will flip off the switch. I will turn off the lights. I will darken the world that you reside in. It's been an interesting couple of years, to say the least, in our world, in our day and age. There are very few people in this congregation where at some point over the course of these years, there hasn't been some kind of recognition of the unique hour we live in, where you know maybe the, the light switch hasn't been fully darkened, we haven't fully turned off the light, but the, the dimmer switch seems to be moving towards greater and greater even uh, the most basics of, of Christian understanding, they seem to, uh, those individuals seem to realize that we live in a land that seems to have aspects of encroaching evil. And yet, in the midst of that, I've also heard many of these same people, and I've said this myself, that still there are places, still there are moments, still there are sanctuaries set aside where we can go to or we meet people where we realize that the light hasn't been overwhelmed by the darkness. Even she hearing Shed Fred, Sher Frederick during prayer group this morning, she was talking about her vacation and how it was just wonderful how many belie- fellow believers, fellow people uh, were on that cruise that, that understood the goodness of the Lord. And yet as I say that, there is another segment of society where they reject the biblical idea of light, the biblical idea of a king of light, a lord of light. And they are blinded by whatever they desire to feel. 
Whatever is the new thing. And the truth is that their, their new thing is always malleable and ever-changing. And that wing of society would disagree with a lot of what I've already said. My assessment of this moment. Many of your assessments of this moment. In one sense, they're almost like those fish. Have you ever seen a fish at the bottom of the ocean? I'm talking like the deep, deep, deep bottom of the ocean. They have no eyes and alien in one sense. And, and they just carry on. In a world where there is no light. In a world where there is no sun. It reflects a better image for us to see. And they just carry on as if this is normal. They see nothing. And yet they continue to live while blind in that dark, being no wiser of both light and darkness. And yet here in our passage today, God's going to turn off that light switch. Not just the sun, not just the stars, but actually as the textual clues make clear, even the lamps wouldn't work. A pure and utter darkness would be allowed to fall on the land. I, I think of times I've been in caverns and caves deep in the earth, and there's always that moment where they switch off the lights and they let you see just this pure kind of utter darkness. And this darkness that fell on the land was, was so full in its totality, and it had a spiritual element to it that it could be felt. It could be felt. There was no denying that this wasn't just any simple Darkness, it was this darkness that could be felt. I would guess most in this sanctuary, well, it might not be polite conversation at parties, has at moments been the presence of a magnified evil. I, I remember both times as an unbeliever and a believer where <laughs> you're in the presence of just kind of oppressive kinds of evil and darkness. When God flips the switch, when God turns off the lights in his judgment, that's when evil can be felt. And if you haven't experienced that, that's fine. Don't worry, it's not a major sermon point of today. But in one sense, the, the whole Christian life is a life which begins as an escape from darkness and moving from darkness into light. I mean, just consider with me for a moment the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the eight Beatitudes. It then, after that, has the salt of the earth command. Basically, that Christians are supposed to have a distinctive flavor and taste from the world. You know, if I put a bunch of oregano in a, in a pasta dish, I don't fix the pasta dish if I just keep pouring more and more oregano on it. We need different seasonings and flavors. And, and so the second point that Jesus moves into in the Sermon on the Mount is to be salt of the earth. And then he moves into the idea of the church and the people of God being the light of the world. Lights are good in the darkness. So lights are good when the dusk comes. And, and Jesus basically warns us to resist one kind of temptation. And it's a temptation to cover that light, to hide that light in the darkened world. Here, here's this most well-known sermon of Jesus, and his third sermon point is to say, do not hide yourself when the darkness comes. Let the light shine forth. Because in that light creates an opportunity for people to come. You know, I think a lot of the Christian faith 
a lot of the problems of the Christian faith or the Christian faith poorly lived is a question of hiding our faith. We have little desire at times. We suffer from lack of desire of times to be more faithful. You see, when we desire something, it creates a striving. The things you and I desire are things that we pursue. This last week, we were all choking on the air, right? We were all choking, like eating oxygen. Bruce Stocking is shaking his head now. It's because he was stubborn on a text message conversation. He was choking it down, too. It was pretty bad at one point. <laughs> yeah, but a, a cigar for 24 hours is not a fun way to live. <laughs> We were like chewing on air at one point. And yet, in our household, a desire sprang forth. And the desire was for, from five of us, ice cream. And one of us, chocolate chip cookies. Why do you got to be so difficult, honey? And so a hunting party was constructed. The dogs, of course, they volunteered to be on it, but they were left to protect the house. And I ventured into the chewy air with my two of my daughters, Caitlin and Monica, and we went the road less traveled, mainly because the traffic circle is still under, co under construction, to Landis Grocery Store in order to purchase ice cream and chocolate chip cookies. The desire created a pursuit. The desire created a plan of action. And here's the problem of a large group Christian church they, they believe that the Christian faith is wish theology. Wish theology. I wish this will happen later in life, but I don't actually really desire for the Lord here and now. I wish at the end of life that I, I've picked up that get out of jail free card along the way by saying a prayer, by saying uh-huh at the right kinds of times. And, but I don't really desire to pursue the Lord in word, thought, and deed, in prayer, in, in my household, in how I conduct my life. And that can give a false sense of assurance. And that can carry reality. Because really that is a, a comfort in darkness that God will not let stand. Now I'm jumping all over my sermon notes, but who cares? You know, every time the dimmer switch starts to get turned down, and evil rises. Here's the temptation of the Christian church. We need to change Christianity in order to meet the moment. In order to, we need to get Christianity to no longer say, these truths are light, these truths we hold as sacred, these truths we uphold. We need to, to change Christianity in order to meet the culture. And that's a dangerous road in the darkness of Egypt. And he always thinks this is a profound solution as, as darkness descends upon the land. But if we've learned anything from the plagues, God is a very uncompromising God when it comes to his people, how they should live, how, even how they should worship. More on that in a moment. But you know what the world actually needs? They don't need a changed Christianity. They need a demonstrated Christianity. They need a demonstrated faith. They need a faith lived out in the light of darkness. They need a faith that reflects the light of Christ. It doesn't need you to say the dimmer switch is okay and it's darkness is all right. It needs you to say, why are you sitting here in darkness? Why don't you walk towards the light? Why don't you desire the light? Why don't you desire the Lord? 
And yet, throughout all the denominations, it seems everybody at some level, almost everybody, there are those who have stand, stood firm, are desiring to embrace darkness in order to demonstrate Christianity in the world. But all that leaves the church doing is standing in darkness with darkness. And there is no desire for righteousness. There is no desire in the way of life. There is no desire in the narrow path in such a life. Christianity isn't wishing God will let you have your ice cream of sin, eat it too, and never change. And never need, that never needs to be touched. Christianity is a faith that is demonstrated, a walk of desire towards the light. And here is Pharaoh in the ninth plague, and he will not relent from his desires, and he wants to withhold from God still a portion of that which God has demanded and is his to have. And in one sense, I can, I can sympathize with Pharaoh, Think of Pharaoh. He was a child who was filled with delusions of grandeur of what he had power over. His father, he would have been told, had power over the god Ra. He's a defendant, descendant of Ra. The fair office of Pharaoh itself allows the sun to rise and the sun to set. He's been fed this for all his life, this, this lie of his identity. He is a descendant as Pharaoh of Ra. He is a descendant of the sun god. He is, a, he is the most glorious of all humanity in the world. And he will not relent on this plague. Even though it's, as, as the plagues have gone on in the last two plagues, there has been reality of the topic of death. He will not relent. I would sooner guess that Moses came to him and, and and told him about this plague, he no sooner then began to pray to Ra, to laugh and chuckle at the, at the idea that anybody would so declare that he doesn't have power over the sun. So God just says, all right, I'm going to flip off the light switch of my first good work ever in creation. I'm going to allow a full and utter darkness that can be felt. Now, this is one of those crazy moments in Scripture. It might be the only, the earliest moment in Scripture. We have a decent guess as to what day this is. It's not infallibly held. There's, there's other portions of Scripture in a long rabbit trail I could take you down, but I'm not going to do that. You can take it or leave it as you want. But this might have been Tuesday, March 16th, 1446 B.C. That's when God flipped off the light, light switch. The sun would have actually been set to rise in Egypt at 6 a.m. It never rises. It never rises for three days. It goes fully through Thursday. No rising of the sun. I would imagine at 6 a.m. in Egypt, as they expected that first light break, that at first maybe the Egyptians, as they were startled by the feeling of evil, it was a horrible nightmare, a horrible dream. Um, it actually, the fear is so great that the Hebrew text seems to see, say that it was so oppressive that they were basically stuck in fear at the point in which darkness found them. That they didn't even have the courage to rise out of their bed. 
It wasn't just that God blotted out the celestial bodies in the sky and the stars, the sun, the stars. It was a darkness so thick that no one could ever see anyone else for three days in the land of Egypt. And for three days, Pharaoh would have called out to the sun in which he had been taught as a young child, rises and sets through his throne and his power, and it would not come for three days. And the pagan priests of Egypt and the people of Egypt, as the hours of darkness carried on, their temptation would have been, where is our Pharaoh? What happened to our Pharaoh? Why is the Pharaoh not bringing the sun? They would have been forced to consider the utter defeat of it all. Of what Egypt looked to as its most powerful God that most powerfully established its office of Pharaoh. And yet, there was a light in Goshen. There was a light in Goshen. In the midst of the oppressive darkness of this day, there was a light in the midst of the community of the Lord's people. While darkness prevailed over the most advanced superpower of the world at this time, Egypt, there was a light in Goshen, as we read in verse 23. We need to remember that. We need to remember that. We need to remember that when, again, people want the Christian church to change in order that we become darkened. No. We need a faith that is demonstrated. We need a church that stands firm. We need a church that holds to the light of God's word, that the the word of God is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. You don't save Christianity by making a new version of it you save Christianity by demonstrating the light of our saving faith in the midst of a people in darkness. We even see this in the story of Moses himself. Do you remember how this book of the Bible started? Do you remember how Moses was born into this world? Moses' parents, even genealogy later showed in the book of Exodus, they, they, they were not of righteous origins, Moses' mom and dad. But they had the courage, while still being flawed individuals with their own imperfections, to defy societal and governmental darkness, a decree from Pharaoh that wanted to wipe out the Hebrews into extinction. And God used that one act of righteous disobedience to such a darkened decree by Moses' parents to bring us here now, 80 years later, to a moment those who sit in darkness, to a moment for where those who sit in darkness and those who sit in light, the true God has been plainly revealed to them. And here we are at yet another crossroads of human history where our faith, again, does not need to be reinvented, but it needs to be demonstrated in the midst of a darkened world. You know, it's been a long time since holding the Christian faith in America took much courage, took much strength to do so. But darkness has set upon this land. We can all sense it. We can all feel it. And now is a time for the redemptive hand of the Lord to be seen once more. You know, I concluded last week's sermon with talking about how I've preached sermons here that would get me arrested in Canada. And then had a headline greet me this week. My home state of California is finalizing a bill through its state legislature that would mean teaching biblical gender norms that would be classified as child abuse according to the state, and the state could even remove children from families due to child abuse. The dimmer switch is being moved. My home state would not let me teach my children the lighted word of the Lord 
without calling it a hate crime. And we don't need a Christianity that says, okay, let's get a Sharpie and Sharpie out those passages. We need a Christian faith that's willing to demonstrate its faithfulness in the Word of God. That's what we need in this moment. That's when you get to be a land of Goshen, shining in the darkness. And so Moses comes to Pharaoh for the last time. And I'm just going to say this now. This is one of those moments in Scripture I don't like the chapter break. I would change the chapter break. All the events of this, the, the conflict between Pharaoh and Moses does not end until chapter 11, verse 8. It, it's very clear in the Hebrew that, that the conflict and the conversation, this is their final dialogue that they share. And, and Pharaoh offers his biggest offering yet. Last time he said, I'll let you go worship so long as you don't take the children with you. And Moses said, no, our children need to be in worship with us. That will not stand. That will not be acceptable. We will not go without our children. That's something for us to consider. You know, here I learn to love the cries of babies in the sanctuary. Because the first author of Scripture was so stubbornly persistent for the Lord, the idea of worshiping God without children in the midst was something that he was not willing to do and God would not submit to. You could say, in one sense, might be somebody else who's the father of splitting up churches and worship. But Pharaoh, he's now relented on keeping children from the worship, but now he wants to keep the possessions from the worship. He wants to keep the animals from from worship. Uh, They will be a part of the sacrificial system, but this is also their possessions. And so long as they're willing to part with these possessions, they can go free. They can go. But God, again, he will not be bargained with. He will not compromise with darkness. He is not looking for a new kind of faith. He is not... He's not looking to come to peaceable terms with darkness. God is a Lord of light. And he is at enmity with the leaders who promote darkness. And he's already firmly established his terms of peace. And he wants his people to stand firm upon it in the face of opposition. And hearing the God of Scripture's unwillingness to compromise from Pharaoh, Pharaoh says to Moses, Get away from me. Take care that you never see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Greatly ironic for a man who's emerging from three days of darkness in which he was covered in fear. And so a plague which began with no Egyptian being able to see one another ends with this Pharaoh threatening Moses that he has power over sight. And Moses, in a rare moment of prophetic agreement with Pharaoh, says, I agree, Pharaoh, you will never see my face again once I leave. And then what is said in verses 1 and 2, the Hebrew of chapter 11, the Hebrew clear, are immediately said. It's, it's a debate. Most of the theologians I read, and I tended to agree with them, on whether these two verses of 1 and 2, God said them audibly in the presence of Pharaoh so he could hear it. I, I tend to think he might have. Here's what the Lord our God said, either to Moses privately or to all the audience. Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people. 
that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. The Lord is making known in his word one final plague that he will bring to bear. But what is this about the Hebrews receiving gold and silver? Well, this is actually a fulfillment of a promise given to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 14. Where God had told Abraham that, yes, his children would be put into bondage, but when they left that land, that they would leave with great material possessions. And all these material possessions would, uh, would later on contribute to their worship of the Lord. It would contribute to their building up of the tabernacle. It would eventually contribute towards their worship of him in the temple. But as I pointed out a few times, I, I think even... Passages like this one point forward to the day coming where even the gold on our hands or around our necks and the diamonds and the gems and all these things as we read those final pages of Scripture from the book of Revelation that one day they will come together in a heavenly culmination of heaven on earth and we will worship the Lord there in an eternal day bright and glorious, where we no longer need the rising and setting of the S-U-N sun, but by the rising of the Son of God, darkness will never invade again. And we can worship the Lord forever and ever. Amen. And the Egyptians who hated the Hebrews back in chapter 1, verse 12, now have a respect and reverence for them. And so this Thursday evening, as Thursday evening gives way to Friday, most possibly March 19th, 1446, as Thursday came to a close, Moses, in verse 4 of chapter 11, declares that in the, of this new day, this Friday, the final plague will commence. And so here it is. If we were to ask a Jew, what is the greatest story of liberation in the Old Testament, they would turn here and they would say, well, it begins with three days of darkness. And at the three days of darkness, as it ends, there is a judgment that falls upon the firstborn. A judgment so severe, a judgment so incredible that it causes the liberation of God's people from sin, from bondage, from slavery, and then we as the Christian, we'd say, oh, that's funny. It sounds nothing like the New Testament, right? No, no, not at all. It sounds a little bit like our story, too. That sounds a little bit like why we call it Good Friday. The world would look at it. Those sitting in darkness would look at it and go, uh, even Paul in the New Testament talks about both, that, that, that the cross was a stumbling block for both the Jews and the Greeks. That they would look at it and go, how is that good? How is that story good? And the reality is the judgment that falls on the firstborn of all creation, liberty to the captives. And that's a beautiful, beautiful story of redemption. And that's what we're looking at here. The Hebrews went door to door. Door to door. More annoying than the Mormons. The Mormons are, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses could only dream to be so efficient in a single day. And out of reverence and awe for the silver, too few, too few after experiencing nine plagues said, truly, surely, you worship the true God. I should come to your land. 
I should come to follow the lightened path that you follow. There were Egyptians saved, but there were more that were left. And we should sorrow over that. Even Moses, as he leaves his final moment with Pharaoh, he leaves an over this. This is not something that delighted Pharaoh. And, and before we kind of close this, there's this odd verse that you might have thought was weird that reads, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes distinct distinction between Egypt and Israel. See, there's a final God that the Lord is going to mock here uh, in this moment, in this final plague before Pharaoh, and it's the god Anubis. And Anubis was the god of death. And I actually learned this not from the commentaries I read, but I, I listened to uh, a class of the, one of the leading Egyptologists of the world before uh, entering Exodus. He's not a Christian. But he talked about how, why they settled on this image of the dog as the god of death. See, Egyptian culture was a culture that was filled with jackals, and the jackals were notorious for being grave robbers. They would actually dig up the, the graves of the people, and they would consume. And so the Egyptologist says that actually he, it's his belief that these elaborate tombs, these elaborate burial practices of the Egyptians actually came to be because they wanted to protect those they buried from the jackals. And so they had the god Anubis presented and represented by a dog. And here God is saying, oh, here you worry about the matter of life and death. Oh, here you worry about life after itself. And you worship a dog in order to, to try to set the record straight. But this final plague, in this final plague, you'll see that none of death affects my people in the way that it will affect yours. And that's why we've got to be children of light in the world. Because surely Pharaoh would have, and, and his high priest, just as soon as Moses left this last time in anger, they would have been crying out to their false god over this matter of death. And yet God is a jealous God, and yet God will not compromise with darkness. That's what the plagues have really shown us, that our God will not compromise the true faith with false gods. And God calls for our worship not to be compromised. And he wants a worship that includes us all. All of us from a great multitude of age ranges and backgrounds and stories. Different tales of salvation and liberation. In order that he might secure for us a more worshipful peace through his ushering in a greater liberation through the firstborn sacrifice. And so what do you want to do this week? What do you want to do with the next month? What, do you, what are the things you're most looking forward to in your next year, the next several years? Where does your desire take you? Are they things of the daylight? Are there things that you could come up here and confidently share? And we would say those are good things. Those are righteous things. Or are we finding desires in the land of Egypt far too often? with a God who does not want us to compromise in such ways. He wants us to be a lighted community in Goshen. There is no peace to be found in darkness. There is no light at the end of works of darkness. So let us more boldly come to the Son. Come to the Son who gives us reason to now call 
the sacrificial offering of the cross on that Good Friday through his nail-pierced hands good. Let us come to him. Let us be renewed. Let us be restored. Let us see the light. Let us have no fear of death. Let us not try to reinvent what he says, but rather let us stand fast and hold firm and demonstrate the faith in the midst of a darkened culture and a dying world. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, now is a time before the final judgment. Liberation is still at hand. People can find peace through you, through the sacrifice of the firstborn. God, help those who have not yet sought that peace, sought that full assurance that your cross gives us. Let them be drawn unto you. And Lord, we too are an imperfect people. All throughout the story of the plagues, all throughout the story of Exodus, from Moses' parents to Moses himself to Aaron to the Hebrews, we've seen people at times stumble and fall into sin. And yet, you still use people like that. You still use people like us as stories of redemption. So when we do stumble, when we do fall, when we do look at the darkened things of the world and we find temporary and momentary and fleeting delight in those things, help restore us, renew us, return us to the old paths. Let us demonstrate our faith both in our personal lives and before others in genuine 